Hello, and welcome back to Assessment Works, our podcast about assessment in higher ed through AALHE. We recorded most of this episode before COVID hit, and production had to be put on the back burner for a while, but we wanted to share it with you now. We kept most of the audio from our original recording session, but we did update the important dates for you, so stick around until the end. Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of Assessment Works, our podcast about assessment in higher education through AALHE. This episode, we're happy to welcome David Eubanks to the podcast. Dave is the Assistant Vice President of Institutional Assessment and Research at Furman University. He's also a former board member and past editor of Intersection through AALHE, and he's an expert in measurement and assessment and a veteran of accreditation processes. We'll also be talking about data biographies, essay prompts for students, and upcoming events in the assessment field. episode, Andre and I like to highlight a cool thing we found interesting or helpful lately. What do you have for us this month, Andre? I'm teaching an online course in cultural anthropology, and these are primarily to arts and media students. And each semester, I like to try new things to see what's working. So I'm coming through the class from, you know, I think I see the big picture from the assessment perspective, and which, you know, we care about learning outcomes. But I also I I try to frame the class through the student's perspective, so I'm always trying to find a way to meet them where they are. So this semester, I tried something called an I Believe essay assignment, and it's a short essay requirement about their deepest passions, what drives them, and it's providing me with some interesting insight and to be able to help to facilitate them in finding meaning in the course and to get the best impact from the course possible. So it's uh, something that it was written about by National Public Radio, and I'll share the resources today. That sounds great. Well, my cool thing is I found resources on how to create a data biography. I found this through Heather Krause. She's on Twitter at Datasyst. Uh, I'll link to her Twitter profile in the show notes. Um, but she does a lot of work at weallcount.com about how we can make data more equitable and we can put data to use in the service of equity. So she's created a resource called a data biography, which is just 30 quick questions to ask about your data. And they're they're designed to remove assumptions and bias. It gets into the details of who collected the data, when it was collected, where it was collected, why it was collected, and how it was collected. And these are some things that we can kind of automatically tend to assume were done in ways that we agree with or ways that are scientifically valid. But rather than just making that assumption about data we work with, no matter what the source is, the data biography kind of helps make those processes explicit. And I will link to it in the show notes. There's kind of a quick version and a more thorough version, but it it just struck me as a really straightforward way to look at our data more critically and to try to make them to make our practices around data a lot stronger and more equitable. 
This episode, we're happy to welcome David Eubanks to the podcast. Dave is the Assistant Vice President of Institutional Assessment and Research at Furman University, a former AALHG board member and a peer evaluator for the SACS COC region. David is widely published on the state of assessment and accreditation, including a recent series titled Reassessing the Elephant and a presentation at the SACS COC Summer Institute titled Improving Assessment Practices. So how did you first get into the field of assessment, David? Well, I was a graduate from SIU in the math program in 1991, and I applied widely for jobs and ended up in a small private Coker College in South Carolina, which turned out to be a really great environment for me because it's the kind of place where if you get interested in something, you can just do it. And somewhere along the way, um, I found out that there was a thing called institutional research and got interested in that kind of work and became the institutional research director, probably around 2000 or something like that. And as you and our listeners probably know, it's a very short step from institutional research into accreditation and assessment. I I didn't know assessment even existed until probably around 2000, except as a, a faculty member having to deal with concocting math assessment plans. We're moving towards the 2020 AALHE conference, and one of the themes that we're talking about at the conference is assessment and equity, and I know that that's a topic you've mentioned a lot in your recent work. So we were wondering, what drives you to consider equity and matters of equity in your work with assessment? I think the goal, you know, is really the outcomes of ensuring fairness for everybody. And in my particular work at Furman, um, you know, if we admit a student to the university, then I feel like we're obligated that that student should have as good a chance as anyone else who's admitted. That's an ideal, of course, but I see assessment as serving that end. You know, assessment is not the end in itself, but it's trying to figure out how do we lower barriers where they might exist? How do we identify what those barriers might be and understand what our, our limitations are? I see this as an iterative process. Uh, We have several projects like that going on, some formal and some less formal, like, for example, in the sciences, trying to program toward underrepresented minorities, which aligns with NSF programming and and grants and so forth. So I see assessment as in, in our office, in our daily work, as trying to support that fairness idea by gathering the kind of information we need and providing the kind of analysis on that information that can help drive decision-making. Great, so what are some types of measurement activities that you think are critical to promoting equity? Great question. Because of the way, you know, the traditional way that our programs and uh, degrees are set up, making it through the program requires that you pass courses and sequences. There's just no way around that. So I think that one of the main kinds of analysis that's helpful is to look at course registrations and grades and retention and graduation. And then if we have outcome measures beyond that, like graduate school, to not ignore that set of information, which has been to some extent ignored by some types of assessment that just focus on learning outcomes. So I see uh, the need for the integration of the learning outcomes with all of the other kinds of information. So I mentioned grades and registration data. That's really important, especially when tied to everything we know about the student from their admissions process 
like uh, socioeconomic status and high school records and so forth. But also, in addition to that, then the other component is being as scientific as we can about survey data. So to use it in a research setting, we try to, for example, gather student IDs with all of our surveys. That helps us link uh, the data from attitudes, for example, do you feel like you belong at the university? Then we can link that to all of these other things we care about. It makes the surveys much more efficient and useful as research tools. It also obligates us to a higher ethical standard with our relationship with the student when we do the survey. So, you know, it's a whole body of practice that I think falls within the assessment office's purview. You had mentioned in one of your recent writings something called an integrated success model. Is, is that what you're talking about here, where you're kind of taking everything as one big picture? Yes, right. So I've heard that at several conferences now in plenaries where people talk about a very laudable idea of trying to ensure fairness, for example, or lowering the barriers to student success across the board by using an integrated success model. And I think it may mean different things to different people. It certainly can mean more intentional uh, and ubiquitous advising and mentoring, for example. And in the assessment realm, I see it as that framework that I just described, but also then behind that framework is a kind of data infrastructure that's needed to support it. So it speaks to the um, machine learning and data science that's blossoming all around us in all the other industries. I think higher education's got to adopt those methods as well. Well, Yeah, you had mentioned, I was reading your SACS-COC conference notes, and you had mentioned in there the danger of only looking at results in, in isolation from persistence results, and that that might be rewarding or privileging programs that kind of drive students out of them instead of keeping students in and helping them to be successful. Yes, that's uh, an idea that I really sort of stumbled across by trying to figure out, trying to explain to myself, you know, what are the gaps that are perhaps in, in some of the more common assessment practices and what could we do to, to work toward a more integrated success model? And I think that idea that the usual way I see at conferences and in assessment reporting to look at the quality of a program is that we could very often look at the seniors. They might do a senior project or we give them a test or we have some way of gathering data from that. And then we just look at that average or some kind of summary as a measure of the program quality. That's a typical way to do it. But that leaves out all of the pathways that lead to that point. You know, um, if there were barriers at the entry-level courses so that some types of students never made it to the senior uh, capstone, then that sort of average quality at graduation metric can't help us with those kinds of problems. There'd be a bit of survivorship right. bias built into those data. Right. There, yeah. yeah, right. In fact, I came across in one of the uh, a book on assessment, one of the examples of the successful assessment um, if I recall correctly, this is from long ago, but I think what uh, the example was that this program increased the rigor of the program and they saw their average results go up. So that could be that, you know, the students actually learn more because of the rigor, but it could also be that the weaker students just dropped out and therefore your average, average results went up or some combination of the two. So I think taking a step back and looking at the pathways to that final point 
which I think inevitably involve registration grades, are the missing element. So what are some of the obstacles you see as preventing this work from happening, and how do you suggest we overcome them? I think there was a publication from the Institutional Research Association in the last couple of days that sort of outlines uh, a program for bringing more data science techniques into higher education. I think that kind of infrastructure is essential if we want to gather lots of data, integrate it, and, and build models off of it, which I think is essential for this kind of fairness idea, partly because some of the populations that we're talking about are fairly small. And so we have to have really good data to make up for the fact that we don't have a lot of it. And it has to be highly organized and integrated and so forth. So I think one of the obstacles is just staffing offices and perhaps finding the IT support so that we have uh, the data infrastructure in the background and developing those kinds of practices within offices so that we focus on, you know, archiving and warehousing data that can be used for these purposes. That's one thing. I think the other obstacle, a big obstacle, is uh, a cultural one in that assessment for um, assessment offices for a while now have been to, to a great extent, driven by accreditation um, reporting, and that accreditation reporting was probably okay for the previous generation before you know higher ed ran into all of these questions and, and issues we have now. So I think maybe it's time for a rethink, and particularly to take a hard look at data science and what it can do to help us out. And I'm by the way, I'm not suggesting that sort of data and statistics are the only thing that happens in assessment or the only important thing that happens in assessment. I don't believe that at all. But if we want to talk about doing analysis on student success to help underrepresented groups, that that analysis part, I think, does rely on statistics and data to a great extent. That actually segues really well into our next topic that we wanted to talk about, which is accreditation. So you spent a lot of your career in the SACS SOC region, and you've been a faculty member, you've been an administrator, and you've also been a really frequent peer evaluator of other institutions. So in your work with SACS, which is not the, the region that either one of us has worked in, what kinds of assessment models do you see their process kind of privileging maybe at the expense of other kinds of, of ways to gather data about student learning. Right. So, yes, I've been in the uh, SACS region for my whole academic career, and I think I've been on about 10 committees, which half I've chaired, something like that. Um, and the process works great. I, I'm really a big fan of the peer review process, bringing in experts from other institutions who kind of know how things actually work. You know, the librarians know how libraries work and so forth. So we have people who are doing the work involved. And I think the unusual aspect of the assessment standards is that they're sort of formed by a lot of political considerations from the part of higher education and on down with institutions and our whole whole industry of higher education trying to figure out how to meet these accountability standards and so forth. Anyway, for whatever reason, we've ended up with uh, assessment standards, at least in our region, that are, to my eyes, pretty bureaucratic and kind of fixed in format in that there are certain understood, unwritten rules that you have to comply with in order to, to pass the review. 
So for example, generally course grades are not considered data worthy of consideration, nor are surveys usually, at least in isolation. And the emphasis is on the format of the reporting. You have to have, you know, learning outcomes specified. Some people are more particular about the language than others. And there's no emphasis that I can tell on the actual quality of the data so that the effect is we end up forcing faculty members to create reports even when just a basic statistical analysis would say we shouldn't trust this data in isolation. We shouldn't, you know, if we've only got 10 students in our program and we've averaged some scores or something, we shouldn't put undue weight on that average. We should also really think hard about what the faculty think about their students and their programs because they're the ones who spend all that time with those students. But the requirements, as I understand them, are sort of imagining that that data that we gather is really good and and almost um, cuts off the more subjective but most likely more valuable information that the faculty members could provide directly. So do you think that these issues of assessment becoming a bureaucratic process rather than a genuine process for continuous improvement, do you think that this is unique to the SACCOC region or have you had conversations with people from other regions that have similar experiences? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I judge mainly from talking to people and seeing presentations at national conferences and from the editorial work on the intersection. Um, I don't see much difference in the kind of rhetoric. Oh, also the assessment listserv. So, you know, there's a lot of ideas that come from all regions there. I don't see much different across the regions in terms of what approved or accepted practices are. It seems to be generally accepted that you can take a very small amount of data as long as it's using an approved process like regrading papers with a rubric. And it's just kind of assumed that that's going to give you good information and that you can just average that and then produce a number that's therefore meaningful without taking into account any of the basic statistics that you'd learn in the first class. And I, I realize why that's so. It's just a necessity. Most programs don't have a lot of students and you would be stuck if you didn't do that. But I think that's a challenge for us to find better methods, not necessarily to stick with this one. I think it'd be fairly easy to check if you look at your own assessment reports or if you're on a peer review committee or something if you look at sample sizes, do people look at the variation, the natural variation of those scores due to students being different and their experiences being different and the error that's latent in any kind of testing? Is there any attempt whatsoever to understand the variation? Generally, what, from what I've seen, the answer is no. And the emphasis pretty much across the country is on how do I get faculty to write these reports? How do we use a rubric to see if there's something missing in the report and get them to do it over until it's right and how to get them to construct rubrics and stuff like that. Very, very little about actual data analysis and meaning. So you mentioned earlier, in addition to the importance of understanding the variation, the importance of talking with faculty about almost their lived experience in the classroom and what they've observed in all of their time interacting with students. Do you have suggestions of how that kind of qualitative input might be integrated into assessment framework? Yes. Thank you for that question. 
So that's what those two articles in assessment update are about, really, the uh, reassessing the elephant. Early on, we were probably having drinks in the screened in porch in Hartsville, South Carolina, with some faculty members trying to brainstorm how we could get more data. <laughs> Believe it or not, we talked about this stuff because regrading a few papers or using test scores or something produces so little data, and it's usually not very good in terms of the variation versus the, the thing we're trying to measure. So what we came up with, what these faculty members actually came up with, was the idea of just asking faculty members, how do you think your students are doing? So you could just try this, you know, walk around the halls to the history department or something and say, in the last couple of years, who've been your best students? I bet you they will be able to pop those names out immediately. Not only that, they can probably tell you why they're their best students. So it's tapping into the, what you might call a teacher's way of knowing, you spend enough time with students. And of course, this sort of implies that you have smallish classes. If there's two or 300 students in the class, you're probably not going to know them very well. But for many situations, the faculty are actually going to know a lot about the students. So what we do is just ask them. At the end of the term, we give them a survey. About half the faculty report back voluntarily. And we say, here's your course roster. Tell us with respect to writing, for example, that would be one of the outcomes. How well do you think these students are performing relative to where they should be at graduation? That's a key point. The rubric has to be tied to a developmental scale rather than one that would just sort the students. So we want to know relative to your idea of what a student should be able to do when they walk across the stage, how close is the student to that goal? This very quickly produces an enormous amount of information. So after doing it for four years or so at Herman, we've got roughly 150,000 ratings of this type. And the data that I've analyzed most closely is the writing effectiveness data, and that's what you can read about in those two articles. What you'll find there is kind of a description of the idea, the philosophy, and the application, and also a first attempts at doing a validity analysis to see if, if the data actually means anything. So that's one idea. When you've done this, this kind of out-of-the-box analysis, do you include that when you submit your accreditation materials to SACS, and have they been receptive to that? We uh, have included all the sources of information that we have, including you know, when we have stuff like grades analysis, I include that too. To a certain extent, the reports we have to do for accreditation are a little artificial in that we kind of have to force the stuff we want to do into the boxes that we have to have to supply for a reviewer. If it's too strange, the reviewer's probably going to throw up their hands. So yes, I've included that. In fact, we had our reaffirmation visit a year and a half ago. And I included that. I included validity analysis. I included articles about, we've had, I don't know, four articles published on this, maybe included all that information. And they said nice things about the system. So I think it depends partly on how open-minded your reviewers are. From, from speaking with other people, there's a definite quality issue in the training of peer evaluators for the different accrediting regions. And that's just based on my informal conversations with people. We wanted to talk about was also how do we move assessment beyond bureaucracy? I know that that's one of the things that you discussed in your presentation at the 2018 AALHE conference. Specifically, you discussed that the people working in assessment office offices would promote better assessment 
by demonstrating the value of assessment outside of accreditation. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Like what kind of things do you and others do that might not be accepted within SACCOC or HLC or Middle States standard guidelines, but that you do anyway because you know that it's meaningful. So you gave us one example, and I think that's very useful to our listeners. And I wonder if you have another one. Okay, let me give you an, uh, one example of what we do, and then I'll back up and talk about the bigger question. Our office writes probably 90% of the assessment reports. We don't ask faculty members to write assessment reports. That's because we want them focused on the more important part, trying to figure out what does their program care about? How do you think they're doing? What are you going to do about it? And then we have interviews with them. We supply them with data that we have, and we try to analyze it in helpful ways. And then we bring that back, and we draft the reports in the right format, and then they sign off on it when it looks right. So we've flipped the usual way of doing assessment reporting. And the bigger question of what, how the profession can perhaps change, I've come to think of uh, assessment practice as having two really useful but distinct functions. One is the data and analysis piece that I've talked about mostly here. But the other is the more human piece that's, that's oriented toward teaching and learning and professional development of faculty. So I think of this as kind of the left brain, right brain of assessment. And of course, I think everybody in assessment realizes at some point that working with the teaching learning center is a great idea because if we provide good information, we don't always have the resources to follow up with it, and they do. So in our office, that's how we kind of try to operate. We're the mostly the data and analysis people, and we have a separate office that does the faculty development, teaching and learning pedagogy, including uh, inclusive pedagogies and so forth. But I know uh, assessment offices have greatly varied functions, and some do more of this and some do more of that. So I think if we intentionally grow the discipline of assessment into those two pieces more intentionally, that will help get us away from the bureaucracy. I think it's going to be a very hard cultural shift to get away from the idea, some of the ideas that have sprung from the bureaucracy that seem to be taken for granted. You know, the idea that grades don't provide good information. It'd be interesting to find out what the history of that idea is. It's long outdated at this point. And it's, it's pernicious in that it sort of excuses the assessment office from doing any work in that arena. Mm-hmm. Um, that may sound, a little, may sound a little harsh, but imagine if we'd spent the last 20 years trying to make grades the best they can be and trying to extract information from them the best that we know how. I think we would have made a lot of progress. There's one thing I should probably mention. Assessment is a, such a general word that people apply it to lots of different things. And I think that's one reason that public conversations about assessment can go off the rails so easily. We end up talking past each other. Yeah. And I should mention that, you know, there's a whole research assessment community. Like there's probably at least a dozen journals just on writing assessment done often through composition studies program. I'm on the, I'm on the editorial boards of two journals like that. So there's this whole other body of scholarship that's also assessment. Somehow it doesn't overlap very much with many of our conferences. And so maybe maybe one of the avenues in um, getting away from the report writing culture is to figure out how to bridge the gap between sort of the, 
more bureaucratic version of assessment and uh, scholarship that's happening in some of these disciplines. I think in a nutshell, that's it. If we focus our efforts institutionally, including resources toward data analysis on one hand and faculty development on the other hand, and make sure those things work closely together and somehow figure out how to get out of the cultural rut of thinking about reporting so much, then that's the way forward. And I think, I think that would be a welcome change from pretty much every quarter, right? I, I don't think faculty members like spending their time filling out paperwork. I know I prefer in my work to focus on, you know, the humans who are being assessed and the humans who are doing assessment rather than, than making sure that every piece of data that we have fits neatly into a box. So right. I think that there is a hunger out there for this kind of cultural change. What kinds of supports do you think the field would need to really enact this change? If there's a, a desire there to do it, but it hasn't happened yet, what, what do we need to move forward? Probably the biggest challenge would be the technical skills for the anal analytical piece, because those are in so much demand, it may be easier to grow those than to go out and hire them. So uh, organizations like AALHE, I know, are already interested in providing professional development for assessment people who are interested in growing into the data management and analytics piece. I think for most of us in the practice that we do, it's, it may be easier and more natural to take on a more faculty development role. I think lots of people already do that. Given the way that the report writing culture has minimized the importance of statistics, I think that's the harder piece. Well, thank you for joining us. We ask every, every interviewee that we do at the end of their interview, what's your favorite thing that you're working on right now? Oh, that's a great question. I've got two really cool projects. One is organizing all our survey data into a database, and I've built an engine on top of it. So, for example, if there's a question like, do you feel like you belong at the university? So I can type in the word belong, and it'll show me all the surveys where that's been used, which is like 23 of them, and then it will accumulate all that data. It will link the data to everything else that we know about students that's connected to IDs, and let me make graphs uh, of all different sorts, longitudinal and cross-sectional graphs of that. So it, it allows for really easy exploration of survey data. That is really cool. I was wondering what, what tool you use to build this. I work ex pretty much exclusively in R. Mm -hmm. It'll do all that stuff really naturally, and it's tied to a, a SQL database on the back end. So it's all probably software that's either free or already available at the institution. You don't have to go out and buy stuff for it. The other project is I'm, we've had probably four academic programs trying to understand how do students end up in my major and how can I increase, you know, open the spigot a little bit more. That kind of goes back to the equity issue. So I'm really interested in trying to figure out what are the um, incentives and barriers for students to get into particular majors. So I've been working on this project of, they, you know, students tell us what they're interested in as freshmen, and we know what their high school grades are, we know what their socioeconomic background is, and so forth. So I'm creating models for each program, regression models, to figure out what's the most important factor for students to take, you know, one, two, three, four courses in a particular discipline, and that's turning out to be really interesting. Well, that does sound fun. Well, Thank you for joining us today, David. And uh, as your school year is getting started here, we hope that everything goes well. 
Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to you both for your time this morning. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, thank you so much, David. And now to mention some upcoming assessment-related events. January 20th through the 23rd, AACNU will have their annual meeting in a virtual setting. And the theme will be revolutionizing higher education after COVID-19. So that sounds really interesting. From January 29th to January 30th is the eighth annual SLO symposium put on by Fresno City College. Registration is now open. It's a gathering of faculty and faculty leaders focused on assessment of student learning. And the keynote speakers this year are Dr. Aisha Lowe and Dr. Davis Jenkins. From April 29th through the 30th, the Assessment Matters Regional Community College Assessment Conference will take place at Johnson County Community College. And I'm not sure if that is, they're planning on having that. It's virtual. It's It's virtual virtual and free. So that's virtual and free. Registration opens January 21st. So keep an eye out for that. And announcing our own annual conference. This year, the ALHE's annual conference will be held from June 7th to 11th. It will be virtual. And our theme this year is E3, Exemplars, Encores, and Enigmas. Andre, do you want to say a little bit more about what each of those three things are? Sure. So exemplars, theory into practice presentations to support the assessment community. Encores will be some timely, meaningful, and notable presentations and conversations that merit revisiting. So things that have been really well-received and helpful uh, that we've offered at AALHE events in the past. And enigmas will be questions and theoretical explorations of assessments effect on institutions, learners, and the world. And proposals are due February 7th. So if you have anything that you're working on that falls into one of those buckets, we'd love to see it. And our exciting announcement is that AALHE has just hired a new executive director. Her name is Angela Hoffman Cooper, and she is amazing and fierce. So look out for a bonus episode soon where we'll introduce her to our assessment community. So I'm really excited about her starting and to talk to her for this podcast. That's all for this episode of Assessment Works. Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune in next month. Don't forget to send us your audio files to podcast at aalhe.org. And we'll see you next month. All right. Bye now. Bye.